You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Monster House presents. Hey, Monster Talkers. It is Halloween season. And there is no better way to get in the mood for Halloween than a nice, creepy story. Luckily, the co-host of Monster Talk, your very own Karen Stolzno, has quite a few for you to choose from. From Would You Believe It? Mysterious tales from people you'd least expect. She puts together a fantastic compilation of stories from skeptics, scientists, magicians, of people you'd least expect to have creepy stories. Then we have Haunting America. Karen takes a trip across this nation, finding all the best hauntings, and then reports them back to you. Well, if you don't have time for a whole book right now to get in the mood for Halloween, you have to read her short stories, starting with Unforeseen Circumstances, leading on to Don't Leave Me, to the very chilling I Am Me and then to Welcome Home Based on a True Story, and her latest, the very urban legend-esque, The Dark Road. All these short stories are only 99 cents apiece. You just can't lose. So definitely get in the mood this Halloween. Go to Amazon.com, look up Karen Stolzno, grab yourself a couple of stories, read them, and review. Happy Halloween. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and look through their incredible collection for your selection. Download and start listening on your phone, your computer, or tablet. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. As we like to say, it's always Halloween at Monster Talk, which we will prove in this and some upcoming episodes. I'm working on some Patreon bonus content as well. Patrons at any level can look forward to coverage of some of those 200-plus Bigfoot movies I mentioned a few weeks back. I'll be starting that with an absolute classic, the 1957 film starring Peter Cushing and Forrest Tucker, the abominable snowman of the Himalayas, or possibly the Himalayas. It's hard to overcome a lifetime's habit of pronunciation, or possibly pronunciation. 
Anyway, Karen and I are excited to introduce you to today's guest, artist and author Carlin Beccia. Her newest book is titled Monstrous, The Lore, Gore, and Science Behind Your Favorite Monsters. It's a children's book that combines monsters and science in what feels like exactly the same spirit of this show. If you have a little monster talker in your life, they're going to love this book. Honestly, I am a grown-ass man, and I love this book, and I'm betting you will, too. I'll put some page shots in the show notes, as well as links to the book and to Carlin's website. Without further ado, let's get on to the... Monster Talk. So, how did you find out about Monster Talk? So, I actually discovered you recently. I would say, I want to say like two or three months ago. And I'm kicking myself because I wish I had found your podcast earlier. And I was one of those people that I I didn't really fall in love with podcasts until recently. And I didn't really use them as part of my research. I would watch YouTube videos. I would watch, of course, a lot of documentaries and, you know, primary sources and secondary sources. But I wasn't using podcasts in my research. And now I realize I have missed this whole avenue of really, you know, well, because most of people who do podcasts correctly, they put source notes and everything for their their podcast. So it's actually a legitimate way to research. So that's why kind of why I've been ODing lately on your podcast. Oh, wow. <laughs> because I miss so much of it. So I'm like, wow, this is great. There's a lot out there about monsters, so you can be forgiven for not coming across until recently. No, but I didn't listen to any podcasts before, so <laughs> I just I just discovered them recently because I, I said to my publicist, I'm like, I don't want to do the city to city thing anymore. I don't want to do book signings. And she was she was like, Well, you gotta do something. And I said, All right, I'll do radio. Let me do radio. <laughs> so this was the compromise. This is good though. No, I, I think it's fascinating because the material in your book uh, matches up so nicely with uh, the way Monster Talk approaches these topics. Yeah, it's a good fit for the show. For sure, sure. yeah. So I, I think uh, I think we'll have some fun here. So it's um, it's it's Carlin Betcha. Betcha, Betcha, isn't it? Y- yes, it's pronounced like you Betcha. Oh, that's perfect. Okay, cool. So yeah. that's that's exactly what we were saying. <laughs> yeah, kids like that when I go out to schools. I tell them mm-hmm. that first, and they get a little giggle. I bet. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, so. Betcha. Can you? I didn't see a lot of biographical information about you, but I'd like to introduce you to the listener. So, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? The, the your your elevator pitch for who is Carlin Betcha? Sure. So, I'm an author illustrator. I work a little differently than some illustrators because I use a mixed media where I combine my own textures in the computer digitally using Adobe Illustrator and a program called Corel Painter and of course Photoshop too. And I focus mostly on middle grade and teen. And I would describe my books as they're kind of the books that will make you that weird guest at dinner parties. I gravitate towards all this trivia that would be something, you know, it's all the did you know sort of things. And um, I would say some of my books tend to be a little bit on the darker side. Um, The last book I did was about the misadventures of famous body parts like Einstein's brain, Beethoven's hair, hair, um, George Washington's teeth. So I tend to to gravitate towards subjects that are probably not found in most bookstores, but um, that kids kind of like. I think most of our listeners are are the weird guests at dinner parties. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So so you fit right in. I would have loved to have had this book when I was in middle school. I, I still have actually... Well, I, I shouldn't say still have. I reobtained a lot of the books that I loved growing up. It's part nostalgia, partly because I've got my own kids and want them to kind of see the same material that helped shape me. But uh, yep. a big fan of uh, Daniel Cohen and a lot of uh, uh, you know the classic mythology books and monster books and that sort of thing. So, so this would have fit right in. I we me and my friends would have worn this book out from the library. And we should mention the book. Yeah, so we should talk about what we're talking Cullen. about. <laughs> yeah, we, we've invited Cullen on the show to talk about Monstrous, the law, gore, and science behind your favorite monsters. And you've just released this book. It just came out a few weeks ago. Yep, this one is hot off the presses. It released Eight. a couple weeks ago. And yeah, I'm, I'm. you know, I say this about every book, but I think this book is especially, is, is dear to me. It took five years to complete this book. Wow. It was a wow. lot of research, a lot of research. And it It was weird because I never wanted it to end. I kept finding all these interesting things and it 
it, it really did turn me into a reluctant polymath in the sense that I, I kept researching these subjects and then I would fall down another subject into another subject into another subject. It's just the, the research is what really took a long time with this book because I couldn't stop researching it. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I think Karen and I have both been there. And you're also kind of describing how this <laughs> show has turned out. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, down a rabbit hole. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there's certainly a lot of research in the book, a lot of science and history, and some fantastic illustrations too. Thank you, thank you. There's a, a saying in in children, the children's lit world that you write the books that you wish that you had as a kid, mm-hmm. and. I was the child that I, I didn't really fall in love with science as a kid. I, I did later in life, but I always think about that child when I when I'm especially when I'm working on science books, what it was like to not like science. I used to dread going to science class. And so my objective is to make science so ridiculously fun and so easy to learn that readers will love it. Well, that's fantastic. So mm-hmm. what inspired you to this particular topic? I mean, obviously, the previous book you had done does it does touch on the morbid, but this is uh, this is downright monstrous. Yes, it <laughs> is. It definitely is. Uh, so I was the kid who was scared of everything as a child, and when I was a kid, my father decided he was going to do his own sort of exposure therapy, and he started telling me the scariest, most blood curdling monster stories possible, and I think he did it partly to. Um, to make it seem that monsters were not as scary as they seemed because at the end of the story, the story ends. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, monsters are kind of a contained way to address your fears in the page. But then you close the book and the story is over. And I thought about that when I was writing this book. I thought about being an anxious child and how children have have a lot of fears, especially today, I think maybe more so than when we were growing up. And I I started this book researching actually the neuroscience behind fear. Why do we fear the things that we we do? And what was fascinating to me is that it's such a primordial urge, urge to fear and how fear kept us alive, that our ancestors would fear something And because they had that fear, those are the ancestors that survived. The ones that were cavalier and didn't have, you know, their dopamine receptors were going off like crazy and they were risk takers. Those those people didn't survive. So they did not pass on their genes. So I I know that sounds like a weird place to start a book, but I, I started it addressing this subject of fear. How can we control our fears? And I thought one of the reasons to do that was to make monsters more logical. And so I take all these monsters and I break them down and I say which which traits are real and which are not, which are possible and which are not. And I see kids doing that all the time when they watch, they see like a comic or something, they'll say, that's not possible. An invisible man couldn't do that, you know, couldn't walk through walls. And I, I thought that was a wonderful way to address fears in a contained way. Yeah, we have uh, actually seen that before too. We've had a few guests on the show, uh, including Lynn Kelly. She's an Australian author and uh, she's written a few books about spiders. And that started, her her love of spiders started with her fear of spiders. And so she started investigating the topic to to learn more about it, to get rid of that fear. So uh, I think that's great that you can not only do that for yourself, but also to uh, to teach other people how to overcome their fears. Yeah, I missed that podcast. I'll, I'll have to listen to that one. But yeah, that's that's fascinating because that's exactly what I was trying to do. I was trying to think about my 10-year-old self and I was terrified of monsters and how to make them less scary. That's fantastic. So mm-hmm. you've got a lot of different monsters that you covered in here. How did you pick which ones you wanted to talk about? Well, it was it was really difficult because they had to fit into a certain criteria. So all the monsters begin with the history behind them. So the first criteria was it had to have a great origin story. And what I mean by that, the history behind the monster had to have a narrative arc that I that I could work with that would be interesting to readers. So that was the first criteria. The second one is that it had to fit into a science lesson. So the book covers so many topics. It covers neuroscience and biology and paleoanthropology and you know, just a lot of things that were were honestly over my head at the time, and I had to become more and more educated on it myself. And so there was many times where I would research a monster, and I felt that it just didn't apply to a science lesson I could teach the readers. So whenever it did, that was like, well, that that monster was in. But there were there were a lot of ones that did not make the cut. Um, 
maybe they'll be in book two. But uh, dragons, I researched for a long time. They did not make the cut. Witches, ghosts, maybe they'll be in sort of a paranormal one next. But yeah, there were. And it's funny, too, because the back of the book has this um, vacation spots you should avoid if you don't want to be eaten by a monster. (laughs) And uh, it's all over the world. Because, you know, I did that because kids love maps. I mean, everyone loves maps. Everyone likes to look at a map and see, you know, which monsters are would be living in that area. And those monsters were all the ones that did not make the cut. <laughs> those are all my reject <laughs> That's <monsters>. a long <laughs> list. <laughs> yeah. But it's you, you do cover an astonishing number of things. And I, I want to just say you've got some real, even though it's a kid's book, you've got some real deep cuts in here. I mean, some things that uh, I, I think a lot of people would not have heard about. We, we have, but I think we're in an odd position in that we kind of specialize mm. in these sort of things. But... <laughs> I, 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 I'm just impressed that I, I'm actually impressed at the the depth that you managed to get to in a book targeted for young people. It's it's very impressive. Yeah, and I'm it's, just gonna, a, it's a dense book. And you've got you. It's nice because you've got a bibliography and an index, so uh, mm-hmm. you can go and find you know specific monsters if you're in a hurry. If you you know, is that a werewolf? Is it a dog man? You can just look it up in the index and figure it out. But the <laughs> I, yeah, I'd also say that the vacation spots to avoid would be a great map for a lot of our listeners for places that they want to visit. Yeah, <laughs> it's a yeah. It's into that dark I made tourism. a big poster yeah. of it too. Oh, so, nice. yeah. oh, do you? Okay, that's... yeah, yeah. As part of my giveaways, I made a big uh, poster because you know maps can be blown up. So uh, you mentioned that you do treat a lot of topics, and some of them are very fun, very very interesting. Like things like uh, which body parts are best for zombies to eat and that uh, not necessarily brains and should vampires drink from arteries or veins. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of these topics that you treat? Yeah, you know, it's it's fascinating to me because I was actually able to find the data on this. There are people who research cannibalism in different societies. So all I mean, I my job is to turn it into an infographic that's easy for the reader to understand. But the research was all there. And I found tons of research papers on cannibalism. And, um, you know, I it's in the bibliography. I forget who did the research on it. But a, a, a group did a paper on all the, the caloric content of each body part. Nice. And of course, I had to turn that into a fun-loving graphic. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I was researching was uh, eating brains. Uh, so, you, you, I mean, you guys already probably know this, but one of the diseases you can get is prion diseases from digesting brains. Is it and I thought. That, is that right? Yeah, cur- cur- I know, you know, I mispronounce everything. It, it, what kills me is it's the same name as a brand of tennis shoes. And, yeah. and my wife bought these therapeutic shoes, and and she told me the name. I was like, whoa, they named the shoes after, <laughs> like, a prion disease? They didn't do their from, market research. From P&G? Yeah, yes, yeah, so it's New Guinea. Anyway, yes, yeah, it's very similar to, uh, was it cow, mad cow disease? Mad cow yeah, disease, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I thought to myself, well, I mean, I don't understand why this quip of zombies eating brain. And then I realize it's not in every movie, but some of the original movies, you know, one of the things that zombies eat is brains. And that's the worst possible thing you can eat because you're going to get more sort of zombieism symptoms if you start eating brains. And if you look at that that as a disease, most of the people end up acting like zombies after they eat these brains. So the moral of the story is kids, if you become a zombie, don't eat the brains. For one, they're very high in caloric content because our brains are huge energy consumers. And second, so my you understand my theory on that. My theory is that if you become a zombie, you need to extend your miserable zombie existence as long as possible until they find a cure for the viral epidemic. Uh-huh. So I tell readers that they actually need to eat less calories, not more. So one of the worst things that you can eat is the brain because the brain's the most fatty substance in a body that you can possibly eat. And you'll also get a prion disease, which isn't any fun. So my suggestion is to try to eat as light as possible. So this is sort of the zombie diet plan. And um, there's a fun, you know, infographic that has all the caloric content of zombies. Good advice. Yes. That whole eating the brain things comes from the Return of the Living Dead, which is uh, it was actually based on a John Russo story. And John Russo and um, Romero had had been partners when they did the original Night of the Living Dead. So when 
he wanted to split off and do his own thing. It, it was directed by Dan O'Bannon, and, and O'Bannon, great writer. He wrote the script for Aliens, uh, or Alien, rather, and uh, lots of other cool projects including like uh, the uh, remake of the Twilight Zone series. He wrote some stuff for that. But but he added in this brain thing of eating brains as, as sort of a comic element, but it took off. It's such a it's such a viral thing about zombies eating brains. And it's really, it's just the Return of the Living Dead. It's just such a small subset of all the zombie movies. But uh, to me, it's almost like a, um, oh, there's a, a, a really great word, for when you are in the know, a shibboleth, uh, a special word that you can say that people will know you're like in, you really know what you're talking about, or you're in the in group, and, and anyway. So for me, if it, when people start talking about eating brains, I always think, oh, well, they're not real zombie fans because you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but there is also that Just great. Um, do you know um, uh, Jonathan Colton's music at all? He, they, they've got that really funny song. Uh, about mm. it's like a, a office memo being written by like everybody in the office has turned to zombies except for like a few people and the zombies are writing a letter saying all we want to do is eat your brains it's like a little memo it's really, really <laughs> no funny. I don't know that oh it's that's hilarious, hilarious. Would... So, such a it's very catchy too uh, I'll I'll uh, you know what I'll find it and I'll send you a link to it so you can listen to it but I, I could actually throw it in the show uh, here because it's a um, it's he's he's made his music available for podcasts and that sort of thing so it's great. You want to talk a little bit about you know you've sort of talked about monsters that are possible and monsters that are impossible and like you just mentioned with your zombie take you're talking about a viral zombie not a supernatural zombie here so can you talk about some of the ones that you thought were possibly real or could be real scientifically not not that they necessarily exist but they're, they're not breaking the laws mm-hmm. yeah so um the you know the book is is aimed at teens, tweens, teens, and adults, I say. But um, what parents often ask me, you know, can my seven or eight year old read this? And I always say, yes, they can, but you probably should skip the last chapter. And the reason why you should skip the last chapter is because the last chapter is Godzilla and nuclear fallouts are very real. And I go into the science of how to survive a Godzilla attack, but really it's how to survive a nuclear fallout. And I, I found all these, I listened to so many prepper videos and did like so much research on how you can survive these nuclear fallouts. And you would be surprised how much information the CDC puts out. And so there's a graphic in the book about where you should go if if Godzilla attacks. But really, it's where you should go if we ever did have any sort of nuclear disaster. And that chapter, that chapter scared me. <laughs> so I would say I would advise parents that if they have a very young child to maybe skip that chapter because uh, the, it, there's a map in the book about uh, which areas in the world have the highest nuclear readouts. I mean, that stuff is kind of scary. That's, you know, so that, that yeah, would the, be the, the real stuff is scary. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it, and my job was was to show like this is scary. This is not so that it will encourage critical thinking in readers and, mm-hmm. and really to cogitate on why they're af- afraid of something and what they should be afraid of. And um, that would be one of the things that I would say would, and you know, this, the origin story behind Godzilla too is also heartbreaking. It's a, it's a very, very real story. It's not, you know, the, the vampires chapter is kind of tongue in cheek and werewolves are fun and all that, but you get into Godzilla and you're talking about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, and the Bikini Atolls and, you know, a real tragedy that came out of that movie. So the reason why that was my last chapter is because that's my one serious chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. So that would be the monster that I would say is the scariest. Yeah, sure. it's a, a substantial chapter. I, I, I did you did you have any issues since Godzilla is a property of, of Toho? Did did you have any like legal issues talking about him as a monster within that context? I, 
I knew you were going to ask me that. So, you know, with Godzilla, you can't use any photos. They're very protective of it. And, um, you know, it was it was run by legal. And God, please, no one sue me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just a children's book author. I can't afford to be sued. But yeah. I was I was really concerned about that, how to portray Godzilla, because his image is so protected. And it turns out that you can show illustrated images of him, but you cannot show any photography whatsoever. So that is well. That's consistent this, with your art style too. So that's great. Okay, and yeah. I love the fact that you've got the uh, on the uh, the page where you introduce Godzilla, King of the Monsters. You've got a great drawing of Godzilla. that's very much in the style of Gojira, and mm-hmm. but you've also included uh, the waves from the Hokusai uh, style, and, and I think that I'm assuming that's Mount Fuji in the background. That's that's you've ca- you've sort of really captured a lot of the Japanese themes right there in that one piece of artwork. It's really impressive. Yeah, so this is kind of a hidden Easter egg that you you guys probably already noticed, but each chapter begins with an art parody. So the Godzilla Godzilla was my ode to all of that. So, yeah. You know, it's funny, too, because a lot of people don't pick up on some of the other pages, probably because they're a little bit more obscure art references. But that was a that was a fun thing to draw. It was very meditative because there's so much line work in the way. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, now you make me want to go back uh, and look at everything and see if like. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think it's the kind of book you don't read just one time. You keep going back and finding out more each time you look through it. But I, I've got a four year old boy, and uh, he loved the pictures in in this artwork. Obviously, he can't comprehend a lot of the science and the concepts that you've written about, but he could identify all of the characters. And uh, I, so I think even for younger kids, it's a fun picture book, coffee table book for adults. Thanks. I mean, I think why, I mean, why do children love monsters? I think everyone likes to be scared because when you, when you, when you're scared of something and then you can close the book, there's a huge sense of accomplishment that you were scared yet you survived Versus, mm-hmm. you know, real life fear. That's different. So I think there's something about monsters and horror movies that society is always going to gravitate towards because they're a way to confront our fears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, I'm just looking at all these pictures now. Well, a little bit. So your style, is it's, it's very stylized, but clearly, as you said, you're, you're drawing on a lot of references and... and uh, and these infographics um, are impressive because because they are exactly that. They're infographics. But I don't know if kids reading the books realize how much it's a uh, highly educational, at the same time, creepy and interesting kind of approach. You know what I mean? Like, like, you're, like the Dracula's Bloodline page. You've got dates, images that capture the timeline and are representative of some of the, the, the sort of narrative there. It's your own unique style, yet I can clearly see that you're influenced by lots of different pieces of art. So can you talk a little bit about how you developed your style? Uh, and is, is it tied yeah. to the medium or is it specific for this this book that you took this style? Well, you know, if you look at some of my past books, this book is done in a completely different art style. And the reason why I chose this particular art style for this book is because I wanted to I needed a very clean graphic art style because there's so many infographics and it couldn't be very painterly or, you know, have so much detail that the data wouldn't be uh, legible. So that's the challenge with infographics is they have to be clean and communicate very quickly within a glance. And I also wanted to balance that, you know, between getting the the reader interested, but also not being too scary because the book is written in kind of a tongue in cheek way. And I, I wanted it to have sort of a lightness to it, but not be so light that you didn't take the data seriously because there's a lot of data there. That's, you know, real data that I pulled from these research papers and then had to really take it and put it into the, into the most salient points. And that's not always easy to do. So it's especially not easy to do if you don't have a clean art style. So I had to completely use a different art style for this book in order to do that. Monster dog. This episode of Monster Talk is brought to you by Audible. Audible's offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. 
browse through their unmatched collection of titles, select one, and download it. It's that easy. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. When I decided to run ads for Monster Talk, going with Audible was the easiest choice because I use it all the time. I've been an Audible member since 2003, and I use Audible to prepare for many of the episodes for this show. Many of the books we talk about on Monster Talk are available as Audible selections. My pick for this month is Ghostland by Colin Dickey. We talked with Colin back in episode 149 when we were discussing the Winchester Mystery House. Ghostland is a wide-ranging look at the cultural impact of ghosts on the living. Whether you believe in ghosts as real spirits of the dead, or as psychological effects, or as just an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of undone potato, there's plenty of gravy in this excellent book. Ghostland takes you on a troubling journey through a variety of haunted landscapes. It takes you to meet haunted people and gives an unflinching look at the ways in which ghosts hint at the exploitative sins of our combined indifference to the suffering of the invisible living, the poor, and the fringe. Now, if that sounds bleak, it isn't. The text is so poetic, and the narration in the audible version so moving, that you will be haunted by Ghostland. With Audible, I can listen to my books on my phone, or in my car while I mow the grass, and I can hop seamlessly between devices. And thanks to Amazon's WhisperSync, I can read a book on my Kindle and then pick up in the same spot on my morning commute with the audio version. You can select any of Audible's titles when you sign up for your 30-day trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. And I strongly recommend you get started with Ghostland by Colin Dickey. To download your free audiobook while also supporting Monster Talk, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and sign up today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Monster Talk. You said you work digitally, right? Uh, do you use mm-hmm. uh, like a tablet, or do you work directly on the screen, or do you? Uh, how do you actually do your work? So I use a pressure sensitive monitor. Uh, it's called a Cintiq, and I paint directly on the screen, and it picks up the pressure of my hand the same way that paint would. So I, I have a lot of um, a fine arts sort of painting. Yeah. And, you can't tell the difference between my oil paintings and my digital. They look exactly the same. Yeah, it's I know it's it's weird, but I'll show people like this one was you know which one do you think was created in real oils and which one do you think was not? No one can tell the difference. But what was challenging about this book is I I couldn't use any of that painterly style because it just wouldn't fit the topic. It needed to be a, a lot a lot punchier. The colors had to be bright and sort of stark in places. So that's why I had to, you know, use more vector art. So vector art is Adobe Illustrator and it's um, it has those cleaner lines to it. So, yeah, that's why I chose this style. Do you like do uh, a sketch and then clean it up with vectors or do you start with the vectors and then fill in with paint or uh, like what 
How do you take that yeah. approach? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I'm being cryptic. So what I do is I sketch either on my iPad or a pencil and paper. Then I scan it in. Or if it's on an iPad, I just send it to my computer. And then over that sketch, I put colors creating vector art. And vector art is interesting because it be kind, it comes kind of like clay. You can squash and mold things to your liking. So it's, um, it's a, how would I describe it? Vector art is, is more, it's more points driven. So you can take that art and shrink it down without losing any of, uh, of its, um, its ability to, to be clean on the page. Right. The, it, it, the, you can, it's adjustable. It doesn't get pixelated or anything like that. It's no, right, none yeah, of that. Right. And that's scales perfect. very smoothly. Yeah. Yes, it's completely scalable, which is really important with doing data driven art because you often have to take pieces and make them bigger or other pieces and make them smaller. So then after I'm done with the vector art, I know this sounds like a convoluted process, but I take it into a digital painting program, which does use pixels, and I will paint over that uh, using uh, like acrylics and more uh, painterly brushes just to give it a little bit more texture. And I only do that with um, the art that doesn't have text and numbers with it because I don't want the texture to distract to distract from the data. So really it's a three-part process where you go sketch, vector art, and then also the texture over it. Interesting. I'm asking all these because my, my, uh, my daughters uh, and my son to some extent, but my daughters are doing a lot more digital art and especially uh, Madeline is, 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 and so she's able to do things with my iPad and some painting programs that I am completely envious. I've been using computer artwork since the Macintosh, like the original black and white one. So, I mean, you know, I was painting with a mouse by pixel by pixel. And then I remember the first color max and all that stuff. So I've been doing uh, computer art for a long, long time, but the transformation of having touch screens and pressure sensitive uh, screens is just absolutely transformative. And I'm being left behind because I just, it's not where I came from. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I find it fascinating that, you know, I do school visits throughout the country and I give um, demos on digital painting and kids pick it up so quickly. But I give the same talk to adults and they're just no, they're like, what do you don't understand about this? <laughs> like you click here and then you do that. Yeah. But kids, kids are they pick it up immediately. And maybe that's just a comfort level from growing up with it. I don't know. Maybe. Well, one more question. I'll, I'll, I'll shut up about art. But the, the, <laughs> the art, do you use a, um, with your touch sensitive screen, do you use a, your finger or do you use a stylus of some sort? Yeah, I'm using a stylus on the, um, and the reason why I do that is because a finger would be not precise enough. Yeah, that's what I was curious so, yeah. about. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. But yeah, between the, the artwork and the research and the writing and doing all of that yourself, no wonder it took five years. Yeah, no kidding. To complete. Yeah, and I I have to mention I had a lot of expert readers on this book because again I'm not an anthropologist I'm not I don't have a medical degree I'm certainly not a neuroscientist so I had to have a lot of people over the years read this to to fact check sure and, yeah and it, you know one of the the challenging things about when you're researching a topic like this is the science keeps changing. And that was the most frustrating thing of all is that, you know, especially with, you know, our research with aging, there's a, a chapter in the vampire, in the vampire chapter about telomeres and what we've, we've learned about aging. And my Google alerts kept changing on that. They would say one thing one year and then another thing another year. And it's, and same thing with, um with Neanderthals, you know, there's so much research on, on, you know, our origins, but we're still discovering things each year. So, I mean, the last page of the book is kind of my um, my save your, your butt page, where I basically tell the reader, listen, I have done my best to give the most accurate research here. But in the next few years, this research might be wrong. Yeah. It's a great excuse to put out a new edition in a few years, then update yes, everything. That's true. Exactly. Although I do like to remind people that that when science changes like that, that's not a bug. It's a feature. You know, we, we, yes. it gets, it's constantly pushing towards the best possible, you know, like the most uh, accurate information it can. And when new data comes in, things change, you know? So, mm -hmm. but I remember when, when, when Karen and I were younger, we would have been reading, um, all the vampire books would have been about porphyria and, uh, <laughs> you know, like all these different sort of natural world explanations for vampires and werewolves. And, I, I think it's uh, interesting 
you know, I've watched the books change over time. And you've got a whole chapter about the dead versus the undead, talking about um, some of the phenomena that happens around uh, bodies decomposing. And around the same time that your episode comes out, we've got an episode about uh, burial practices that's going to be a very nice companion to this. And Oh, you have to cover deviant burials. Ooh, deviant burials. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> so, so deviant burials, de- deviant burial burials are something that's trending right now because we keep finding them. And what what a deviant burial is is any time a person was a suspected vampire, they would take a a, a large rock and put it in their mouths, and they they know that they they these these rocks are placed in their mouth. They're not shoved. That's not the cause of death, and they can tell that by examining the the skull. Or they would place a boulder on top of the person. And the reason why they were doing that is because they actually thought people were escaping the grave. So now we're finding all these burials throughout the world with people with, um, you know, they're chained in their coffins and they've got boulders on top of them and rocks in their mouth so they can't feed. And it's just, it's just fascinating, all the superstitions that led to these these burial practices. I thought that's what you were probably talking about, and, and we do cover that. I just I don't think we were Stakes calling it. in the heart yep, and that yep, kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Head being <laughs> placed between the legs, uh, the uh, femurs being put into the sign of a cross. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, never forget the importance of being buried at a crossroads and drinking the ashes of your heart. So, you know. Yes, one <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's so fascinating that uh, these kinds of burials were taking place in, in multiple countries around the globe and, and not just in one place, that these ideas were spreading. Yeah, there was one in Connecticut. I mean, that's really close to me. <laughs> so, yeah, these, these beliefs were being carried throughout the world. Yeah, that's um, – so Connecticut, that's the Mercy Brown – um, so, you know, I, I actually, I forget the name. It's not the Mercy. I know what you're talking about, the Mercy Brown. Are you talking about the other one they found in the gravel pile? Yes. Yeah, yes. That, that not was, the yes. Mercy Brown yeah. tuberculosis sort of phenomenon. Um, but yeah, I think his name was, last name was Brown. I, I can't remember yeah. his last name. I remember, yeah. the, I remember the gravel pile one. That That's a very interesting story. That's the ones the kids were playing the gravel pile and they found. Yes. But, the kids found that yeah, one. Yeah. So I, I had to include that in the book because I'm like, hey, hey, kids. You you never know when you might find a deviant burial in your backyard. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I never know. <laughs> uh, so the next question, Blake, you put that one in. I don't know if you want to ask it, if you want me to. Oh, I, this is uh, uh, about the obscure monster topics. The, the, yes. I yes. just I thought some of the ones that you included I thought were really interesting, especially the story about the two-headed dog surgery and then the whole section on corpse decomposition. So you did these uh, sort of uh, – I, I called them uh, tasty nuggets, uh, sort of the sort of things that a kid could say on a road trip and suddenly all the conversation stops in the car. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Would you like to talk about – were there some of those that you thought were particular? I mean, you included them in the book, but <laughs> yeah. any of those that sort of stick out that if you wanted to have the elevator pitch for what kind of things can my child learn? Yeah. So there's a, there's a page on transgenics, which again is probably since it's a, it's a burgeoning science, it probably will change. But I was fascinated by, I mean, I had to cut so many examples of transgenics in the book. But basically, for, for listeners who might not know what transgenics is, it's combining the uh, different sets of gene, DNA in order to get a, a, a result that will, a trait in a, in a species that we can use. And one of the examples would be this be of that is silk so silk is one of the so spiders in their webs are extremely strong and they're also lightweight and they're an amazing and amazing material that we can use in airbags and uh, sutures and there's all sorts of ways that we can use spider webs but the problem is is that spiders can't be um, harvested like moths together because spiders have the inconvenient habit of, of attacking and eating each other so what they decided to do in order to get this really strong uh, silk from their webs is they took the DNA from the basically the spider webbing gene and they put it inside goats. And then the goats would have milk that they would take that DNA out of and they would use it to create this really, really you know strong 
um, sutures and, and webs. Um, basically, they're kind of like spider goats, but they have this, they have this basically the spider weaving gene in them. And then they, scientists can parse it out from their milk. And there's other examples in the book about, uh, we, we do, for some reason, we're doing a lot with pigs. We seem to always be uh, experimenting with pigs. But uh, spinach pigs is another one, and they're predicting that, that they will be in the supermarket soon, where we take the DNA from the spinach plant and we put it into pigs to, to make a healthier, leaner pork. Mm. So there's there's all these ways that we're that we're using transgenics. That's cool. You know, to, so so yeah. Popeye could have some bacon instead. Yes, I mean I don't know why you wouldn't just eat spinach, but if you, yeah. I, I personally don't feel bacon should be messed with. But if you did want a healthier bacon, then uh, transgenics might give you that. Well, I do actually. I do enjoy an omelet that's got spinach and bacon, and now I could have it all in one. So you could. Yeah, yeah. There you go. If they could just well, make the pig also lay eggs, that would be. <laughs> don't. It's probably. It's possible. Oh, I, I thought you said Spanish pigs at first, and see, si. not spinach. <laughs> yeah. Took a minute. <laughs> so you have uh, you mentioned that you have a blog as well. Uh, so it, it sounds like a lot of these topics that were edited out, you can either put into a, another volume, a sequel, or you can write about on your blog. Yeah, I mean, aren't podcasts and blogs a, a labor of love? I mean, I'm sure you guys mm-hmm. know that. Oh yes, that you yeah. take you, you know your all the subjects that you're passionate about that that you can't get out in your regular, I mean, I don't know about you, but a lot of my friends don't want to hear about transgenics. So what well, you find your I, audience. Exactly. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it, it's a way for me to be excited about a subject and, you know, put it into writing. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's the, um, my friends get tired of hearing me talk about monsters. My family gets tired of hearing me talk about monsters, but somehow we've got 6 million downloads so somebody likes it yay yeah so that's you gotta find your people right that's that to me is the where blogs and podcasts and any sort of endeavor they it helps you find your tribe yes absolutely and i mean we have listeners who know more than us about the topics that we treat and will write in and correct us on things or uh, provide further information so yeah we absolutely have people who are very into this topic absolutely Yeah. yeah And I, I think uh, your book is going to be a great gateway for the monster inclined. Those 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 kids that have that monster gene, they're gonna they're gonna need this. So mm-hmm. that's, that's my job yeah. to make little monster lovers out of them, <laughs> especially this time of year too, with uh, Halloween coming up. Oh oh yeah, yeah yeah. This would be a great thing to stuff in their pumpkins. This would be. <laughs> <laughs> so so how how's the reception been so far? Uh, so I just started. Um, I have an, an interview with the Washington Post that I'm excited about next week. And I've done a few radio interviews. But I kind of like this Never Leave Your House book tour. It's, oh, yeah. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, mean, this, I don't know why I didn't think of this earlier. but uh, So I haven't done a single book signing. <laughs> not a single one. I, you know, I'm an introvert. I'm not one of, you know, sometimes people are like, well, I'm not really an introvert. I'm an ambivert. I, I can, like, you know, play act the extrovert. I'm like, no. I want to go home and not see anybody. <laughs> so yeah, I I am I'm loving giving these uh, radio and podcast interviews because I can do them with my fuzzy slippers on. Fantastic! Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of teaching online, so it's great to be able to just teach while wearing your pajamas. Yeah, it's it's wonderful Jeez. to not you know leave, to leave not have to leave the the comfort of your home. Mm-hmm. The way the world is working today. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you mentioned another uh, educational book too can you just tell us a little bit about your your other books yeah sure so my my last book before this one was called they lost their heads and it's about the misadventures of famous body parts Uh, it covers einstein's brain it covers beethoven's hair washington's teeth haydn's head it's basically what happened to people's bits after they died because I thought, oh, there's, you know, it, you always think someone dies and that's, you, you, when you read a typical biography, they die and that's the end of the story. So that book takes place after they die and it tells the story 
of what happened to them afterwards. For example, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the story because you guys seem well-versed on everything, but Lincoln's body got stolen, it got moved around. It's a fascinating story that's also in the book about uh, what happened to his body after he died. So the book is all about misadventures, and it has sort of um, a lot of... Uh, it, it's funny, too, because the we brought up Mercy Brown. Mercy Brown is in that book, and that's what got me interested in this book. I thought about the whole vampire scare that happened in Connecticut and how uh, it was there was this confusion between vampires and disease and tuberculosis to be specific and it got me thinking about well what other fears did we have that we shouldn't have had you know we shouldn't have we should have been fearing tuberculosis but we should not have been fearing vampires so uh, and you'll you'll find a lot of nonfiction authors will say this that often a, a book idea comes out of their previous book so it's just sort of each book leads to another oh, yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that's ideal. And do you write about uh, Anne Boleyn or the the Tudors at all? Because I've seen pictures of you online wearing a Anne Boleyn style headdress. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of my books is called The Ruckus Royals, and it in cover it uncovers rumors throughout history, which is kind of apropos for what you know we're going through. The book is really old. The book is about ten years old, but now we're dealing with this whole fake news phenomenon. And um, I think it was Napoleon who said, you know, all everything. And I'm going to misquote, but I'm going to paraphrase. It. He said, all history is just rumors. It's just a distillation of rumors. I think was the exact quote. And I, I came across that quote one day and I was like, yeah, everything is just rumors. You know, everything that we learn about history is, you know, we get it from letters, but still, I mean, letters are one person's point of view or hearsay. So that book basically presents to the readers a famous rumor. For example, the Anne Boleyn, Boleyn chapter, uh, the rumor presented is, did she have six fingers? True or false? And the reader right. has to turn the page in order to find out. But they have to guess before and they it, you know there's they're given a piece of art that has a clue but before they can turn the page they have to guess and the reason why i set it up that way is because i i always try to do these very interactive books you know that like i i think monstrous is somewhat interactive in the sense that it asks the reader to participate with these infographics because they it's a lot of information to take in so uh i had a lot of fun researching that book because there were so many rumors throughout history things i thought were true that mm-hmm. i had been told or taught as a child that turned out not to be true you're gonna have to give us a spoiler on anne boleyn's sixth finger then <laughs> because i'd read that she had a some kind of a growth or a nail that was coming out of the side of her hand so is, is it yeah. true or not Yes, that actually is true that she possibly, I mean, there there are, again, we're going by the firsthand accounts that we have that she possibly had growth going out of her finger. But again, it could have been her naysayers who, who were trying to defame her character, you know, saying Call her she, a witch. Yeah, because they also said she had warts, too, all over her face, which I highly doubt is possible. Uh, yeah. So it, it basically encourages readers to do their do their own critical thinking and come to their own conclusions on when they read something, don't believe it. You know, don't, uh, it's, it, it, I describe it as the book that teachers might hate because, you know, you're taught something in school and I want readers to question it. If they're taught something and it seems illogical, question it, you know? Mm-hmm. Seems like you've got a running theme of critical thinking throughout most of your books. Yes. <laughs> Is that a passion of yours or the, the critical thinking or just an off? shoot of like doing fact checking for your book in general you know i'm one of those people that i'm always you know do you ever get an idea in your head and you think to yourself well you know that's true and you've done all the research on it and it it, you you get so ensconced in your own sort of mindset and then you read a research paper or someone contacts you on the on the podcast and says well actually that's not true and there's two ways to react with that i think some people can take umbrage with that and say well, no, I'm right. And, and, you know, you're wrong. Or there's a second reaction that will go, okay, I might be guilty of confirmation bias here. Let me look into your research and see what's true and what's not. And I think it's the latter type of thinking that leads to um, almost, you know, a more inquisitive nature. Yeah. So do you know, do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, that, that absolutely. Are, yeah. 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 Definitely, we really try to keep open-minded on the show, uh, but certainly there are a lot of people who invest a lot into their beliefs and have that that sunk cost where they just refuse to change their minds on something. 
Yeah. And I, I think when you do have, you know, that sunk cost fallacy in your head, you end up missing out on so much knowledge because you're not open to see the possibilities of other people's viewpoints. So, uh, I mean, it, it, not to get too philosophical, but I think what I'm trying to in, encourage is really is more empathy in readers. You know, when someone comes to you and and says, you know, I, I mean, it could be the way they approach some people, you know, can be a little bit gruff. But if if they're telling you that that your research is wrong, listen to them, because it, not only like being wrong can be a wonderful thing. It can open up possibilities to being right about a million other things and learning more more things about your subject. Wow. It feels like not just with your book, but in general, the outlook is you you, you really are going to do well with our audience, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I get a lot of new fans. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. Thank you. Yeah, so that's fantastic. Well, is there anything else about your book that you want to make sure that we get out to listeners that uh, we haven't covered already? God, I mean, you covered so much. I mean, I, I always give my disclaimer that if, you know, speaking of when we were saying if things were wrong, um, the, one of the things that's tough with authors is you, you know, you're bound to get things wrong. And one of the things that I, I, I kind of bristle at is when reviewers post things online or like give you a bad review about information that they believe is incorrect. And why not? Why not contact the author first? Yeah, because that can be a reprint. And it's such a more mature and I don't know, just a nicer way to go about it. I mean, whenever I'm reading something and I come, because, you know, let's face it, we are not infallible creatures. We're going to get a lot of things wrong. Whenever I'm reading and I read a lot of nonfiction, I come across something where I'm like, I don't think that's correct. And I actually have a primary source to prove it. What I do is I contact the author and I say, hey, just to let you know, for the net reprint, you know, here's the primary source, that information, uh, you know, might not have been as up to date. And so, yeah, I think that's I think that's a a kinder way to go about, about things. It's a much more likely outcome that the error would be fixed if you take that approach. I don't think most like editors are scouring the reviews to find the fixes, you know, so if you're no. really genuinely concerned about things being accurate going forward, that is absolutely the best way, you know. So, yeah, I agree. I, but I think for for some people, it's a hobby to mm. to point out errors, and they like to prove themselves to be more intelligent as they see themselves. So I yeah. think for some people, it's uh, it's pastime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's true. <laughs> so I mean, we live in a, a weird world where. You know, criticism is anonymous and you would never go up to a dinner party and go, I hated your book or I hated your podcast. You know, you would be a little bit more political about it. So, oh, yeah, really emboldens people just yes, having, it, being able to do it behind the keyboard. Yes, exactly. So I'd like to see less of that in the world. I have my friends call me the unicorn because I have this like rosy mentality. about why can't everyone just love each other? Um, I would like to see less of that in the world. And I try to encourage that with kids. I want them to do their own critical thinking and and not to attack people in this passive aggressive way to if they find something that they that they believe strongly is incorrect think to go to the source. Mm-hmm. That's really good advice. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's great to hit people when they're their kids, just when they're when they're young, and um, so to, to raise them right. Yeah. Well, Karen, have you got any more questions? Um, no, not really. Uh, if you want to, do you want to finish with the last question? Yeah, let's let's take it on home. All right. <laughs> if you've listened to a few episodes, <laughs> you know where we're going. So it's uh, it's time for our signature closer. So, Carlin, I, I know you've got a lot of monsters in this book, and I know this is a terribly unfair question for people like ourselves who really love all kinds of monsters, but what's your favorite monster? Okay, that's really is like choosing between children. Mm-hmm, it um, is. Okay, the monster, the monster example I'm going to give, and I hope this is – I'm going to give a very specific example, and I'm going to ask your listeners not to be eating anything. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's my preamble to this monster. So every monster in the book begins with an origin story, and one of the more fascinating origin story, to me at least, was vampires. And the reason why vampires are interesting is because their origin story – changes greatly throughout the centuries. Um, And if you look back at, say, like the 18th century, you have these demonic beasts rising up out of the 
grave to feed on human blood and flesh. And they're not the sparkly, uh, if you will, kind of sexy vampires that we see in movies and literature today. And those vampires are, they're not called vampires because that word wasn't used. They're called revenant, rev, revenants. And they were the first examples of recorded vampires. But what what's interesting to me is that they're all bloated and messy and they spread disease. And many of these suspected vampires led to what has been, you know, what we talked about with these deviant burials. And the reason why they did is because people didn't understand how decomposition worked. So one of my favorite spreads in the book is an infographic about how to tell if you're dealing with the dead or the undead. Um, and to give a specific example, uh, most coroners will tell you a common occurrence is for this reddish brown fluid to appear at the corners of the mouth after someone dies. And it's called perch fluid. But to me, medieval people, this appeared like the person was drinking blood and had forgotten to, like, say, wipe the corners of their mouth. Um, and there's more to it. Then there's the fact that, you know, hair and nails appear to keep growing in dead bodies. And they actually don't. But what happened is the flesh starts to shrivel up and it's pulled back along the nail bed and gum line. And that makes it appear as if the hair and nails are growing still. And that alone would freak people out because they would, you know, suspected vampires were actually dug up and they would dig up these bodies and they would find that the hair and nails appeared longer. So they, they of course, thought that they weren't really dead. Um Another strange science facts around decomposition is that um, dead bodies are not quiet. They uh, they tend to groan. So uh, as the bacteria feeds on the body, the uh, the abdominal wall can actually burst. And it makes a noise that sounds like a pig snacking on garbage. Mm. Medieval people <laughs> had a name for it. They a called spinach it spinach pig. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they called it uh, sonus porcinus, and it's Latin for noisy swine. So any noises come out of a dead body, really, as you can imagine, was quite disturbing to medieval people and made it made the person look like it wasn't they weren't really dead. And then, you know, I actually I spoke to a lot of coroners when I was researching this book and uh, I was told that like bodies can actually pop. So the gases in the stomach build up mm-hmm. and they need an they need an escape route. And this is why I, I said listeners should not be eating right now. Um, so what will happen is a dead body can do a room clearing fart that coroners say it smells a bit like flatulence and vomit combined. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> bon appetit. I, I, I've actually been present at the corpse of a dog on a summer roadside in Georgia that had been bloating for several days, sort of exploded while... Um, I was at a band practice. <laughs> like, Good timing. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> horrific, horrific smell. Yeah, it. it I mean, I, I've had a lifetime of bad smells, uh, and that one still ranks, uh, if you'll pardon me, way up ranks. at the top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I confess I did not smell any dead bodies for the research of this book. But there was a website, and I can't really think of the name of it, where it showed uh, the stages of decomposition in a pig. You know, because pigs are... They're, the reason why they're used in science is because their flesh resembles a lot like human uh-huh, flesh. Uh-huh. Um, but it showed all of the, the decomposition stages in in pigs. And one of the pages that got cut from the book was a graphic on the the stages of decomposition. And they felt it was just it, they were right. It was a little too graphic. Um but <laughs> yeah. it's it's fascinating because it, you got to think if if you don't understand the stages of decomposition that that dead person it does look like they're actually a monster. Oh you yeah, know, they're a monster. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think there was just a news story uh, in the past couple of weeks talking about corpse movement at the body farm. How th- th- when even though we're dead, things still things still move. You know, there's there's all kinds of yeah. things that could happen, and, and so it, it, that that separation between the living and the dead, the way we hide things away, means we don't see this stuff as much, and so uh, right. that separation leads to ignorance, leads to mysteries mm-hmm. and all kinds of legends and other things. So I think it's great that mm-hmm. that you're doing stuff like this, sharing that information. So um, you know. Any kid reads this. Sure, there may be some scary stuff, but they're also forewarned and, and, and better educated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it makes a great dinner conversation. Hey, mom and dad, let me tell you about decomposition and what can happen to dead bodies. I, I, you know, households anyway. <laughs> I, I would take that 
over the hey, guess what I saw on YouTube every day. Right? I mean, like any time <laughs> yeah, my I'm kid Fox wants to you know, like any time my kid wants to talk about what they read in the book instead of what they saw on YouTube, I'm excited about it. So yeah. <laughs> Even if yeah. it means listening to yet another story about Wings of Fire. Oh, my gosh. So, hey. <laughs> <laughs> my kids are not at that age yet. But, yes, inquisitive minds. That's what we want. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and for sharing this book with us. Yes. This- thank you Absolutely. so much for having me. I had a blast. I mean, you guys are monster lovers, so you are my tribe. There have been few books we've dealt with that have been so absolutely in line with our core principles. I mean, it's, this is, uh, there's a few, but I mean, it's a small number and this is right there. It's right in that sweet spot of monsters and science. So, and admittedly you were jealous. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm, That's I'm, funny I'm, because I have envy in my heart listening to your podcast. I'm like, his day must be fabulous. Yeah. He just, <laughs> he talks to monster lovers and researches monsters all day. I, we have built, um, a pretty awesome uh, hobby. I, I wish we could do it full time because that would be fabulous. Me too. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh yeah. It's a, it's so a, many distractions. I love my day job, but man, I monsters and science. I could do this all day long, every day. No, no question. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Maybe one day we can only hope. All right. Well, thank you very much. Everybody have a good night. Thank you, Colin. Right. Thank you. Have a good night. Right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Monster dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with author and artist Carlin Beccia. Her newest book is Monstrous, the lore, gore, and science behind your favorite monsters. And we give it our highest recommendation for the little monster talkers in your world or for yourself. I'm certainly proud to have it on my shelf with the rest of my tomes of terror. Check out the show notes for links to this book and to her website. You're listening to the commercial-free patron edition of Monster Talk. I'll work to get out that first bonus content very soon. I think I'm going to be calling it Big Footage. I don't know. There's a lot of these things to get through, and I'm hoping you'll find it an enjoyable bit of extra listening. If you want to get access to the bonus content, Big Footage, remember that you can support us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. If everyone who listened to the show supported us at the $1 a month level, we could afford to do this show full-time and dramatically increase our output. Now, now we know that's not a realistic outcome anytime soon, but we do deeply appreciate those of you who are able to support us. For the rest of you, I hope you're able to support our sponsors. We're very picky about who we are working with because this show is so important to us. And thanks for being understanding about the interruptions because those interruptions help sustain Team Smith and Team Stolzno. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. And as always, thank you so much for listening. been a Monster House presentation.